Assalamu alaikum, welcome back to the Dadhood Podcast. It's been a while, but today we have a super special guest. We have Noor Chowdhury, the founder of Involved Fathers. He's also a parenting consultant and the founding chair member of the charity Human Aid. He holds a diploma in child psychology and he has certificates in counselling and life coaching. And today he was speaking to us about the recent Ofsted report that showed uh, that it's become normalised and many children in many parts of the UK, in many different schools, face sexual abuse and sexual exploitation. Uh, and so we were getting his thoughts on this as a Muslim parent, what can we do about it? We also went into his story about how he founded Involved Fathers, what was his motivation? And also I had a little bit of a consulting session with him given that I had some of his time so that we could go through some of my challenges that I'm facing or the things that I'm thinking about as a father. This is going to be a really good episode. Make sure you stick around, hit subscribe, hit like, comment below what was your favourite parts of the episode and make sure you share this around to other Muslim dads as well. Assalamu alaikum, welcome back to the Dadhood Podcast. Alhamdulillah, today with me is uh, Brother Noor Chowdhury, who is the founder of Involved Fathers, um, and he's also the chair, founding chair of Human Aid. Um, and uh, mashallah, you know, he's been doing a lot of these uh, videos on YouTube, explaining to parents how they can improve their parenting skills, looking at the prophetic example. Uh, and he's got multiple different services in Involved Fathers. One of them that I'm part of, which is how I really got involved with yourself, Norbai, is through the parents group chat. Uh, when my son was born, um, a brother recommended me to join this group chat. He said that you know it'll have invaluable information, and I was hooked on it. To be honest, for the first couple of months, reading all the brothers' comments, reading your some of the articles that you were putting in there, the the questions and answers, uh, and you know I thought really this should be something on a on a bigger scale, on a grander scale, and that's what partly inspired me to start up Dadhood was that I wanted to make sure that there was more going on. Um, in terms of for Muslim fathers, there was a lot more uh, uh, kind of information out there. There was a lot more resources out there. And so I wanted to do something with the very little amount of experience I have. So yeah, Jazakallah Khair for coming on. Uh, and uh, inshallah, why don't we firstly start as we always do on this podcast. Um, obviously, uh, you can introduce yourself and introduce uh, involved fathers. But how many children do you have and how old were you when you had them? We ask this to every guest. Okay. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, salam ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Jazakallah for uh, having me on your podcast. Um, so if I started with um, how many children I have, I have six children. Um, and uh, my first child was born when I was 20. Um, so I got married when I was 19 um, and my son was born when I was 20. So um, that's briefly, um, uh, in terms of the children, I've got, as I said, six children, uh, four boys and two girls. Um, and what's the age gap like between them? The age, uh, my, my oldest son, he's uh, 14, and uh, my youngest, he is turning four. So uh, okay. about a 10-year gap between the oldest and the youngest. Um, but in between, it's quite um, close. So my son is 15, my daughter is 12, my son is turning 11 uh, then my daughter is nine then my son thereafter is seven and then my youngest is turning four so that's my uh, that's my lot really um and in terms of myself you mentioned obviously my name is noor um i'm a parenting consultant and 
the founder or CEO of uh, Involve Fathers and uh, kind of the the journey of Involve Fathers is very much linked to my own personal journey as well um, where Involve Fathers is something that I started um, well it started during or after thereafter um, my cancer diagnosis so I was diagnosed in 2016 with cancer um, and that was a a bit of a change for me, uh, he enabled me to kind of uh, stop what I was doing. I left all work, just focused on my health and recovery, going through chemo and surgery. And during that time, it's, it's uh, you know, sometimes I do, I, I encourage it. I find it a very good break for myself, you know, people to sometimes take a sabbatical. You know, you're going through work, you're going through life and uh, sometimes we all need to pause. and. That's one of the key things that I kind of discuss about actually in, in my course that I uh, put together, the three T's of Islamic parenting. Uh, and it focuses a lot on pausing and reflection. Um, and that's from a parenting perspective, but just generally in life, sometimes we're stuck in the rat race. We're just, you know, going on with everything that we've been doing and we don't have time to kind of pause and reflect. And in fact, it's something from the Sunnah that we do even to do muhasaba of ourselves um, is, yeah. is, is, is a principle and something that is very much you know we should be doing and similarly in life that's what we should be doing as well not just in in parenting or any specific aspect and uh, it was during that time where um i kind of then pursued and started um thereafter involved fathers and the key reason why was um you know since since my birth as i said i was a young father um and growing up seeing um how my parents parented you know, I, at a young age, when I was about nine, it was clear for me that, you know, there are better ways to parent. And I had a traditional kind of uh, parents in the sense that, you know, father is an author authoritarian, uh, disciplinarian kind of uh, figure in the house. And, you know, we had that kind of um, upbringing. And I felt that there's more to that, and especially obviously me being a, a man uh, will be a father at that time. Um, thinking, okay, there's something more to it. The Prophet you know, was surely more than that. And it was one of those key things that was focused in my mind that I wanted to be different. Um, and that's what started my journey, really. And I started as a, you know, I got married young, um, intentionally. Um, had a, ch you know, my child came obviously soon thereafter. And um, I kind of continued in terms of uh, being very much, you know, from that age, doing things differently being very involved being uh, there as much as possible for my for my children um and it's always been something that has been a part and parcel of me and so during this period when i had uh, the kind of the chemo the cancer and, and the break um i went through a point of looking at okay how can i improve how can i be better uh, in terms of in, uh, kind of being a father and the more i searched the more i looked the more i saw that there was a there was an absence completely of resources that were, you know, you could say Islamic, um, you could say Islamic parenting as a, you know, if you quote unquote Islamic parenting, there was a lack out of resources out there because whatever was out there was very much abstract. Um, it was theoretical. It wasn't very practical. And that's what really drove me to say, okay, right. You know, what, what am I searching for? I'm searching for practical tips, practical steps that I can adapt, implement in my home, to improve in my parenting and improving the relationship building between me and my children and that's what really drove me that like how can i come about with something that was more practical and the islamic resources out there were very limited 
and then anything that was already out there in the in the parenting field was very much something that was run by mothers, delivered for mothers, and it was more mother centric. It's not really been traditionally a, a kind of parenting, or you know, fathers being really involved in in parenting or or learning and development on that side. So that's what really drove me. And what I did also discover was a lot of the um, resources that were out there that were, that were really beneficial weren't done by Muslims. They were in fact done by non-Muslims, more so you could say those who were more kind of practicing Christians. And I found the resources fantastic. They gave real practical um, steps and tips and techniques that we can really apply. And so that's what really sparked that journey. And through that process, I went through a lot of learning, reading, um, and, and also self-development. I completed a diploma in child psychology, wanted to complete some certificates in counseling and life coaching uh, and further other training and, and learning as well. And that really then shaped me to say, okay, right, this is something that is really needed. Um, and that's what came about really. And that's why the three T's of Islamic parenting was a, is the flagship kind of parenting course um, that I deliver. And this one is very much a practical course. You know, it's 90% practical. You know, there'll be elements of theory about 10%, but it was very much designed so parents can engage, um, learn and take away tools that they can apply in their lives. And it's tackling the kind of the issues that parents always face, you know, the big concerns and questions that they have of raising good Muslim children in this society. Yeah. Okay. MashaAllah. I mean, that is such a... It's, it's an inspiring journey between when I first when I heard it the first time. You've talked about it on multiple platforms before in terms of obviously having cancer and then realizing how important it is to make sure you're involved in your children's life. It kind of made me feel like I shouldn't take this uh, as as for granted that you know I can have children and I can take care of them at any point and any time. There there will be times in life where you know the blessings of being able to be active in your children's life might be taken away from you. Alhamdulillah, you were able to, uh, uh, you know, get the therapy and, and it was successful for you, Alhamdulillah. Uh, but for a lot of people, something like that can happen in their lives, whether it's cancer or something else that can stop them from being actively involved in their children's lives. Um, uh, but, but also you mentioned kind of, you know, in, in, in your upbringing, it was, you know, very much the dad wasn't really that involved or or even if he was involved maybe it was um the i, I don't know if i want to say the wrong type of involvement but it, it it wasn't the maybe the best form of parenting um that that you could put out there as a, as a muslim parent and i i also had this kind of stereotype in my head that loads of um, um, you know, South Asian specifically, Muslim dads are, are like this. They they don't have much emotion, or they're very authoritative in the household, or uh, the only way that they're really involved in their their children's lives is um, through just uh, uh, providing rather than re re really being there and helping the children. Whereas it was the mothers that do all the nurturing and the caring. And I think, that, to be honest, that stereotype does hold true in many households. But when I joined that parents group. Um, I found that there are so many fathers out there that want to be really involved. Like they, they, they don't fit that mold. They don't fit that stereotype. They've, they've gone beyond that. They've found that there's a whole nother realm towards this. So have you observed the same thing when you made that group chat and you, you found all these fathers starting to join? Um, did you, did you sort of find that and out of the conversations that you've had, have you noticed that there's maybe a change in the pattern of things from the previous generation to now? Yes, it's very much clear that um, the old school type of parenting that was applied was on the, our generation of our parents 
know, a lot of them were migrants or, you know, first or second generation kind of uh, parents here in the UK. And what we see with the new generation born and raised within the UK and those who are trying to raise Muslim children, they've, they've become, you know, um, alert and, and quite clear. They understand that parenting is a two parent job. You know, to raise children in this society, it truly does require both the mother and the father to be actively involved in the nurturing and the rearing of the children. We can't just leave it to the mother. You know, when we look at the previous generation of parents, you know, the system worked to an extent. You know, um, fathers played, a, you know, a very kind of distant role. Mothers were the more uh, nurturing figure that's there. However, um, you know, the times and situation have changed. We live in a completely new time and complete new era. And I would say one of the most dangerous changes that we do have in our society now is, is actually technology. And that opens up such or so many different um, dangers. And in fact, that if you don't have both parents in there and they're not really actively involved, then the chances and the risks our children face of you know, falling into harm and going wayward are a lot higher. And so what I have found, just like myself, a parent born and raised in the UK, you know, understanding actually society better here than maybe my parents did who had migrated, that really we need both parents involved. And if both parents aren't involved, then the job is extremely hard. And when you look at the statistics in relation to um, children who are um, involved in, for example, gangs, in crime, in drug abuse, substance abuse, or girls who are getting into uh, promiscuous and harmful relationships and sexual exploitation, is very much linked to the absent father. Um, and that's why, you know, I made quite a bold statement. I, you know, I did put a video, I think last year, if I'm correct, um, where I was asking and posing the question, and it had a lot of traction of, who is more important? Is it a mother or a father? Who is more important in today's society, a mother or a father? Now, obviously, Nacho was going to say mom and dad, they're both important. And we have those discussions. But I was trying to come from a specific angle that, alhamdulillah, we have mothers who are doing fantastic jobs being single mothers, raising children. You know? And we see that even throughout history and Islamic history, that many great scholars have been raised by single parents because the fathers yeah. were deceased, uh, passed away and so on. So it's not to belittle that at all. But however, what we're seeing now is an increase in all of these um, kind of antisocial behaviors and these other issues relating to young people who are getting involved in violence, in crime, in abuse, and, and girls especially going into kind of sexual exploitation, abuse and promiscuity. You see yeah. the trend and, and the, 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 the theme that runs concurrent throughout is that the father is absent. Now that father can be, and most of the time, if the father is totally absent, as in that they're separated parents or deceased, incarcerated, and so forth. And other other time where the father is actually present physically, meaning he, you know, he's in yeah. the family, but he's absent in every other way. He's completely busy with his own life, with his own work. He's completely absent from his children, and because of that, we're seeing an increase in these things. So that's why I kind of boldly say the role of the father is the most important role right now in today's society because we're seeing the direct link between these problems that children are facing and the absence of the father and so alhamdulillah you know um, i know i've gone off a tangent a bit but you know we've got uh, you know a lot of parents like that you know like yourself like myself who are quite conscious aware that we both need to be involved mother and father in order to raise children and so that's what we're seeing and alhamdulillah you know by opening the group you know it was really very much you know the, the whatsapp group was started 
on the back of the pandemic when the first lockdown happened and we uh, launched the Islamic Parenting 101 webinars to provide support for parents because now they're kind of cooped up with their children um, the work from home, kids are all at home. So, you know, a lot of difficulties were being faced. So Alhamdulillah, those webinars were really beneficial and, uh, and successful. Uh, on the back of that was really just set up the kind of um, the parenting Q&A groups. That's what it was. And we tried to keep it very specific, very niche, just just parenting Q&As because sometimes parents, you know, we struggle. We, we all struggle. You know, no one's perfect. Yeah. No one's, an, and, and I don't claim to be an expert. But what I'm trying to do is just to help and support parents based on my experience and my knowledge um, and, you know, just trying to, you know, support parents because really, you know, we have it within ourselves, each and every one of us to be the best parent, to be a better parent. It's just I'm there to try and help you unlock that. Uh, and it's yeah. been no, no means to say I'm an expert and I'm the guru. I don't like that term. I don't believe in that term either. Um, but rather, um, that's what we have within the parents. And the Q&As were really a means and a way to allow parents to find out and get support because a lot of the times, Parenting is a lonely, lonely journey. You know, we, we're, we're alone. Sometimes, yeah. you know, we may not have extended families. We might be just the husband and the wife. And it can be very, you know, difficult. And so we need that support. So, you know, even if you don't have extended family, that group chat is still important. I mean, I have extended family and I sought out to be involved in a group of fathers who have been going through the same things. You know, alhamdulillah, I have, uh, mashallah, there's that involved father's mug. I might need to get one of those. <laughs> Uh, so e e e even though I've got, um, you know, extended family and they're very helpful, I, I wanted a group chat where I have like-minded brothers, you know, fathers who are going through the same journey. So even, even for somebody like that, I think it's, it's important to have that group. Yeah, definitely. I think, uh, like you said, um, family are, are family and not everybody's in the same journey and maybe sometimes even values can misalign, um, and concerns can be different as well. And we see it within families. You know, I see within my family, my brother is one way and he's raising his family in, in a certain way. My sister is different. You know, a lot of the times, you know, the rules, regulations that we have are very different from each other in raising our children and the values and the concerns we have can also be different. Well, however, one thing yeah. we do find is, like I said, within the, within the group is that you've got a group of fathers who, alhamdulillah, have that similar concern uh, and are on that same journey. And I think that, in a sense, is creating that community. And um, it, it's a shame because, you know, you know you've know, you heard the age-old kind of term that it takes a, a village to raise a child. And that term was so true. And our children are missing the village. Um, and if we look at the kind of uh, concept or the situation of old, we look at, say, uh, raising children in, back home, as we say, yeah? So countries of origin. You know, they had that village mentality where there wasn't just, a child wasn't just being raised by um, the mum and dad. You know, you had extended families there, you had neighbours, you had everybody around there. You go out into the community, everybody knew the children. They knew, oh, that's the child from that house, that family. You know, the local shopkeepers, you know, the school teachers, the the police and so on, everybody in the area knew them. So there were several eyes upon a child. And that's what it was. That village was around a child. So there's not only one or two adults in the child. There were, in the child's life, there was many. Even if you look back to the UK and you go back a few, uh, you know, uh, you know, go back to the, say, uh, 80s and, be, and, and uh, kind of beyond that as well, 
the UK even had a village mentality. There was an element or the child was being raised. There was neighborliness. You know, neighbors, they knew one another. They looked out for each other's children. Um, you go out into the streets, the local shopkeeper, the, the, the whatever, maybe the butcher, there was always the same faces. You know, you go to the, you know, before they used to have the bobby on the beat. So even the police knew all of the kind of families and the children. You know, the doctors, yeah. again, was, there was probably one doctor that had served generations of the same family. So there was a lot of people out there. But what's happened over time is, in this society especially, we've gone more and more towards isolation, where people are now living individualistic lives, and that sense of community and you know, village elements gone. So then what happens is, at the end, who's only there to look after for a child? There's only the mum and dad. Why? An example is, you know, you have loads of local shopkeepers don't exist anymore. You've got Tesco's popping up with employees who come from different places. You've got doctor surgeries, especially in urbanized areas, where you've got big doctor surgeries. You're not seeing the same doctor all the time. There's no connection that's there. You know, you know, and all of those things are taken away and, and neighbors don't talk to each other. We've got gated communities and segregated communities. Uh, and because of that, we ended up with, um, and also gentrification as well as having an impact within urban areas. Yeah. Then what's happening is you're left with a child only being raised by a mother and father. So there's only two adults. And sometimes it could only be a single parent. So that child has only got one figure. And if they fall out with them, there's no other support network that's there. There's no one else out there looking out for the child. And so it's become very, very difficult to raise children. And like you said, even if you've got family, sometimes really at the end it's only... The, the mother and the father that are there that are raising the child so we need to recreate an element of the of the village one for our children but also it supports parents and so i was hoping that maybe via these groups that we create an element of village for the parents so the parents have that means and access and easy access to support in order to be able to you know to tackle the difficulties and the problems that they're facing so i get a lot of the times you know maybe the group doesn't talk much sometimes you can go quiet for a while but i get a lot of private questions you know and so they're answered in in private so you know um yeah my phone if you see my phone is filled with so many uh, questions so many people you know i don't know who has my number anymore so i just get random messages all the time um but alhamdulillah you know it, it's good that if we can at least help and support then you know inshallah you know that will impact on the next generation and that's the key ethos here that you know i want to really you know, you know helping a parent and they overcome a difficulty with their own uh child you know, then inshallah there is a natural dua that will come from that. And the dua of the parent isn't rejected, so inshallah if a dua, if the parent is making dua for me, then alhamdulillah, that's all I can ask Alhamdulillah, I want to go more into involved fathers, but I'm itching to get into this discussion with you about the recent uh, report that Ofsted put out. Uh, and, uh, you know, I saw that you, you sent a few messages around on WhatsApp and things like that responding to, to the report. Um, and so I wanted to get your thoughts on it. So this report, for those of you who don't know, because I mean, it's, it's just been released, right? And, and the news is just reporting on it. Um, Ofsted have released a report of the uh, schools that they have gone and they've checked. And they found that every single school that they've gone to and, and visited has a problem with sexual abuse and sex, sex, sexual exploitation uh, amongst, amongst the school children. I've pointed out one statistic here which says nearly 90% of girls and nearly 50% of boys said being sent explicit pictures or videos of things they did not want to see happens a lot or sometimes to them or to their peers. So this has become completely normalized. 
and uh, you find uh, cases are coming up the news are reporting where they're interviewing people and they're finding that girls are saying yeah it always happened and we brushed it aside we never said anything about it because it was so normalized and boys saying that yeah that's normal behavior that's how you speak to a girl so how have we got to this stage where this kind of behavior amongst our children has become so normalized it's society. So it's, it's the impact of the society that we're living in. Um, it's the hypersexualization of society. And now you see these problems and they're trying to remedy these problems. But in fact, you know, we haven't addressed the symptoms. We haven't gone back to the root cause of what's causing all of this. It's the society we live in. It is, it's, it's the liberal secular society that we're living in, that each individual is their own, um, that they should be able to f live life to however they feel it, following their desires. And we know Allah mentioned in the Quran, you know, have you not seen the one who has taken his desire as his ilah, as his God? And that's exactly what has happened. It's a godless society, it's a society driven by their own desires. And this is what's resulted in all of this. We look at society now, you look at within, within uh, the film industry, within TV, within books, within uh, imagery and marketing and publicity, everything is hyper-sexualized. So then what's happening is having a rampant impact on our children. And then what do they do? They come about with these whole new legislations and say, oh, the way we can avoid teenage pregnancies is by educating, educating children from a younger age about contraception, about um, sexual relations and having, having safe sex, for example. But in fact, that isn't working. They look at examples of Scandinavia and how they're doing it over there. But the society is different to here, maybe. You know, and we look at here in the in, in the UK, all that's doing is is educating children how to basically go about and continue to have these sexual relations even more. Um, and so it's creating and it's bringing and breaking down slowly, slowly the inhibitions and the ages within children. And that's why one of the biggest things that I've been working with as well is in regards to the whole um, new uh, relationship and sex education legislation that makes it mandatory within schools. Um, that was supposed to come in from September 2020, it got delayed because of COVID. Now it's mandatory from this September, although some schools have already started its implementation. And I've been working with schools, working with parents in regards to this specific issue. And the key concern parents are having is, is the overexposure to children at a young age, the age appropriateness of the content that's being taught. Now, in relation with sex education, you know, generally speaking, most of the stuff schools teach isn't, isn't bad. A lot of it is about safety and they're fine. But there's some elements of it where they're breaking things down from such a young age. And examples are, you know, um, where they want to start teaching children about different family relationships. So here we're bringing about the issues of um, LGBT. And again, yeah. addressing these issues at such a young age to children. Now, you know, I'll be very candid in that. Our children will not be able to avoid exposure to LGBT. Yeah, it's everywhere in society within, again, same thing, we talked about it, within films, within books, within TVs, within cartoons, with everywhere, you're going to see it on the street as well. So we shouldn't think that our children will never come across it, they will. It's a complete different um, uh, time we're living in than when we grew up. You know, if I recall when I was young, I hardly ever came across it, I probably didn't understand it at such a young age, where our children are now being exposed to it at such a young age. So therefore, we need to be having those conversations with our children in order to, you know, um, instill the correct values within them. However, um, what's happening is that they're bringing these things that are such a tender and young age to children where their minds haven't necessarily already come across it yet. And so these are the concerns yeah. that we're having that is breaking this down from such a young age. Corruption of the fitra. Other issues that we have is stuff like, you know, they want to start naming of the sexual organs 
of children from, again, from the age of five. Now, generally speaking, if a parent was to teach the correct names, the scientific names of organs to their child, that's perfectly fine. But a parent would do yeah. it when they feel it is the right time, in the most appropriate, in the most sensitive, with higher. You know, however, when you do it in a school environment as a collective between boys and girls, what do you think is going to happen? You know, let's be real about it. Kids then go to the playground. There's many instances where after these certain lessons, kids are going to the playground and said, oh, show me mine and I'll show you yours. You know, so these things are happening. These are primary school children because why? They're innocent. They're thinking, oh, it's funny. It's silly. Yeah. And so all you're doing is you're actually destroying and corrupting the fitter from such a young age. So these things are the yeah. issues that are happening. So now when we see this whole sexual abuse stuff, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a symptom. It's a, it's a result of all of these issues that we're having in society come together. But also, a key thing of it is, is there's, there's a couple of things here, is because society is valueless, it has no value. They're not instilling any proper values. Our dean teaches us our values. And if we are raising our children, we need to instill those values. And some of it is, for example, why is this abuse stuff happening? Because of the rampant access to pornography. This now links into technology. That pornography is at the fingertips. And it's teaching children about how they can, and, and, the, and the worldview of women, of what a relationship looks like. And so then what happens is, when actually Muslim children, you know, people, men now actually, yeah, when they get married, then what ends up happening is they, 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 their worldview is shaped around these kind of films and videos, this pornographic content. And when suddenly a relationship doesn't live up to that standard that they've that they've seen in this in, in, in on online, then what happens is this is what causes breakdowns in the marriage and the relationships. And we've seen many cases of of people who have gone into relationship with, and, and they've so very this, much started so to this, abuse. this report, it's uh, it, it's not just going to be concerning for those children at that time, but actually this can lead to worse problems down the line or as they grow up, as they get into adulthood and as they start becoming mothers and fathers and wives and husbands. That's right. It's, it's got a long, long-term impact. And we're not, this is not going to be the end of it. You're going to hear more and more cases of it. And these are the dangers that our children are really facing. And so it's important that we're actually going to address them. And as parents, and I really advocate this, that we need to be more, uh, you know, uh, forthcoming with our children to be addressing these difficult issues. Well, in, in, in our community, it's, a, it's an issue which is very taboo to, to, to speak about. And it's something which um, parents are, uh, they don't, maybe a lot of parents don't know how they can address that to their children in the right way. So how, how do we get about making it easy for parents to speak to their children about this topic, uh, about sexual topics, about topics of this kind of nature? Yeah, I think that's the reason why I actually published a couple of books um, last year as well and um, looking to get a few more out. And they're a part of a series and I call it the Difficult Conversation series. And they're, they're quite generic, so you know, it doesn't have, it's not necessarily Muslim-centric, but it's designed in a way that is sensitive to us, knowing, okay, how can we broach these topics in a sensitive way? Um, and it gives scope for parents to address it in more detail or less detail. But it's, a, it's almost like a guide and, an ability, and it enables parents to address this topic. So an example is um, one of the topics I, I do talk about is around safeguarding. Um, and there's a book for younger children between the ages of three to eight, again, at parents' discretion, which talks about body safety. Um, and it's done in a very friendly way, in a rhyming way for younger children, where it's addressing the issue of uh, a boy who may be inappropriately touched um, and what they should do if, they were, if that was to happen. 
And so it's done where it's not in a scary way, but a parent will sit with the child, go through the book, and then they're able to then discuss some, uh, more scenarios. And what it's doing is it's preparing a child, because unfortunately there are many Muslim children, you know, many children, but I'm going now specific to the Muslim community, because sometimes we feel we're, we're, we're um, away from this, that, you know, children who are being abused, you know, and it could be extended family members, it could be an uncle, it could even be that they send your children, you send your child to a madrasa, and then, you know, there are cases where there's been the case where, you know, the teachers in the, in, in the masjid are actually, you know, inappropriately touching the children, and many other forms of abuse are happening. And just because you might not be necessarily hitting mainstream public enough, it doesn't mean it's not happening because we may keep things quiet. So it's important we address them in order to safeguard our children. And so this is a tool and a means and a way for us to talk with our children before anything happens. Allah forbid, inshallah, it never does happen. But at least our children are upskilled to know, okay, if something like that will happen, if I'm in a situation where I feel uneasy, this is what I should do. And this is how I can safeguard myself. And then there was another one that I produced for older children, which is for pre-teens, early teens. I'm about 10 plus, you could say. Um, yeah. So the first book was called My Body is uh, My Body Belongs to Me, um, and then the other one is um, so I have a rhyme. My body is mine, and then the f um, uh, the next book is called Let's Chat About Your Body and Privacy. Both books are available on Amazon, um, but the second book is designed for preteens and early teens, and it again covers again once again about body safety and about safety network. Then it actually addresses based around scenarios um, the issue of pornography and the issue of sexting. And because these are live issues that our children will face. Yeah, please, as I say to parents, don't be in a cocoon. Unfortunately, you know, um, do not be surprised if a child comes across this. It's just so rampant. It's so easy and accessible yeah. out there I mean, now. This, this is what the report shows us. A lot of it was about sexting and, and looking at images and videos and, and whatnot. And and when, when they're doing this, they're, they're looking at children all children in all in, in in many schools i'm not, not all schools but in in um, you know many many schools across the uk looking at all children they're not looking at specific types of children so a part of that statistic can very much be our muslim children who attend these schools um and and I, i'm not I, it, it's it's um it's horrifying to say that but i'm not surprised that that's the case that our muslim children are also part of that statistic Without doubt, and you know, okay, I live in Tower Hamlets and I'm aware of a lot of things that happen in the schools within Tower Hamlets. And we shouldn't be, you know, sometimes the parents are living in a bubble, in a cocoon, not knowing what's going on within their own child's life. And this then, I can segue into really about technology in a second. But, uh, you know, the first thing yeah. is, is this book allows parents to cover, it's based on scenarios. In the book, it doesn't use the word pornography, it doesn't use the word sexting, but it creates a scenario. And the way it happens in the scenarios, you, in there you pause, and it's asking you questions. What should you think, say and do? And then you have a brainstorm with the child. So it's designed for the parent or even educators because uh, Alhamdulillah, I work with some schools. They've bought the book and they've actually delivered this with their with their pupils as well. And parent, they're taking the books home. So, you know, it's a really important resource that then makes it easier for a parent to broach this topic. Because like I said, how do I go about talking to my child about pornography? How do I go to talk to my child about sexting? So this book is the ideal thing. You go through it. And inshallah, you're able to then address these issues and then there's follow-on questions at the end. And it's left at the parents' discretion of how much detail to go into, how much not, if you want to add on more situations. But it allows children to be prepared that, imagine I suddenly come across images of nude people. What should I do? A child sometimes, oh no, I've done something wrong. They might hide away. And the last thing we want them to do is hide away or they're getting peer pressured into doing something they shouldn't be doing. Similar with sexting, what should they do? You know, there's a really important points that we can address. So the books are designed for that. Inshallah, there'll be some more coming out. Um, again, they'll be all available on Amazon. Um, and I can yeah. share the link with you afterwards. Maybe you can put it in the description.
I I, th I feel like a lot of parents might be wondering, well, okay, maybe I can access those books and, and I can read them to my children and sit down with my children. But my, my teenagers, you know, they, they're not going to be comfortable coming to me and speaking to me about these, these matters. And, you know, if it happens to them, sure, I can tell them about it. But once it happens to them or once they're involved in it, they're not going to tell me, they're gonna, not going to come to me. So how, how do we make that conversation accessible to teenagers? Like, how do we make our teenagers uh, uh, comfortable with speaking about those matters outside of their own group of friends, actually speaking to people who can help them and support them through it. Yeah, this is a lot of this is about the relationship that we've built with our children. Um, you know, yeah. I always say prevention is better than intervention. And so those of us who may have younger children, we have the ability to be able to really um, build a relationship that can help that we have has that open door policy that allows us to have these conversations. But then again, like you said, some of us already have children who are in the teens and who we might not have built that uh, relationship with. So the, the the key way we can really broach this topic isn't suddenly to sit down and say, okay, right, we're going to talk about this. It'll be embarrassing for them, it'll be embarrassing for you. However, the key thing that we need to do is start building a relationship with our children. And I always said that if the relationship is the foundation, if the relationship is absent, if the relationship is not strong, then everything else is built on, on, on weak foundations and nothing can really sustain itself. Um, so really we need to work on building that. Now, the, one of the ways we do yeah. that is by spending more one-to-one -one time with our children. Um, and that's one of the key things that I, I do talk about, that we need to spend one-to-one -one time with our children. That means me as the dad with that one child, not two, three children, that one child. And another time, me and the dad with my second child and my third child, one-on-one -on -one situations. And we can really do things in, in creative ways, spend some time. But as we do that one-to-one, -one, it could be you do it as an activity. So you create the activity in the middle that brings you and your child together. And then through that, it becomes a means where you can strengthen and get close in your relationship and break down some barriers. And when you're in a one-to-one -one situation, you see your children will slowly open up more and you will feel more comfortable to be able to talk about certain things. And on these cases, it could be that you feel so, you know, scared about how to talk about it. You can do it very indirectly as you break down. You can say, oh, I read a report the other day in the news. It said about these things. You know, um, yeah. and then and then almost broach like that. Oh, do, uh, you know, have you heard about these things happening in your school? And then having that chat. Okay, yeah. what would you do if that happened to you? And then having that, and then say, you know, you can always talk about it with me. But it needs to be in a situation where you don't come straight up front and talk about it if you've had no relationship before. If you've already got a relationship, yeah. that's different. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about if you have no your relationship is very distant, mm. then this is the way to so do it. You have to take a very much of a proactive measure rather than being, you know, reactive, you know, waiting till that moment happens and then trying to address it. Instead, thinking long into the future that that can potentially be a problem for a child. So let me build my relationship with them now so that if they do ever come across that, it's going to be, you know, easy enough to, to 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 talk to them about it and they'll be comfortable to talk to me about it yeah without doubt that's what i always say is, uh, um, um, prevention is always better than intervention because a lot of yeah. parents come late they come late in the day i've had so many parents come to me and it's hard situations they have with their children not just this situation i'm talking about many other problems that they're facing and they're at a stage where okay right they've they've made um or they've missed so many steps or they have made so many errors that led them to a situation where they're at now. And, you know, inter you know intervention is also, is always very, very hard. And working with families is very difficult when you're going in and, you know, I'm speaking to some of the children and you're seeing where things have really gone wrong. 
And then it becomes, do parents really have that desire, that willingness to say, okay, let's restart, let's change, let's really um, build on that. And it can be quite hard. But children, remember, children, yeah. you can always repair the relationship. I always say, you'll always be able to repair a relationship with a child. Inshallah, you'll always be able to. But it's about how far and how willing you are as a parent to go on that journey. And a lot of the times I advise parents, try this and try that. And then they go away and they say, I've tried it, but it's not working. And as I said, the reason why it's not working is because you're not doing it properly. It's not like uh, when, I, when, when I give you some you know, um, um, suggestions of what you can do, um, it isn't the case of, okay, let me try it once. Okay, it didn't work. That's it. It's not working. No, you have to be persistent. You have to be consistent. You have to have patience. And you have to basically sometimes swallow your own pride in order to try and rekindle that relationship because the relationship is key. Without a relationship with your children, everything else, nothing will fall in place. Yeah. We talk about we want our children to be dini. We want them to have love for Salah and Quran and we want them to grow up like this. However, if we don't have a relationship with them, our children will listen to us from the, in the younger ages. Why? Because the power dynamic is different. Parents hold more power. But as a child grows, that power dynamic shifts. And the child becomes more independent. And they realize, hang on a minute, I don't have to listen to mom and dad anymore. And when that point comes in, suddenly you see, what happened to my child? He always listened to me before. That's because why? The relationship is absent. And if the relationship is strong, and that is tarbiyah. Tarbiyah is relationship. Now, I always say, try to shift your mind. When we talk about tarbiyah, I mean relationship. Focus on that. Build that relationship. Because tarbiyah is an emotional exercise. It's not a physical exercise. And if we focus on that, that it's a key role as a parent to provide tarbiyah to our children. It's very much founded upon relationships. And if we have that strong relationship, then you see everything else will come. So when parents talk about how do I get my child to praise, love Salah, praise Salah, all of those things, okay, start on the relationship first. That's the foundation. If the relationship is strong and it's there and it's fluid, then everything else will flow. Inshallah, everything else will flow. So you, going back to involve fathers, you say that um, you're a consultant and you help certain families, families approach you and, 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 and you kind of help them out with some of this situation. So what are some of the most common types of situations that you find yourself dealing with? Yeah, this is where I would kind of go into a little uh, side rant as well. <laughs> um, but it's very much about um, the, the crux of it goes back down to how parents have managed their child's access um, to technology. You know, I, I, and it really boils down to this, that children, unfortunately, because us as parents thinking, okay, I want my child to fit in. Maybe we grew up, we didn't have certain things. I want my child to have those things. I don't want them to feel like, oh, they're a bit left out. They're a bit different. But what's happening is we're giving children things and access to things at a very, very young age, and it is harmful for them. And we're seeing the harms that is happening by looking at society, looking at how children are behaving and what's going on within the homes. Now, the average age, for example, that a child now receives a smartphone is the age of 10. That's the average age. Yeah. Now, there are children who are younger. I know that. I've got kids who are in year one. Actually, my son's in year two. And there's children that age, who, this year, eight, seven years old, who have smartphones. Now, what does a seven-year-old need a smartphone for? I'm, I'm sorry, what do they need it for? Because why? We're trying to fit them in. We're giving them more than that's actually needed and required. What happens then is our children then go and they get access to wider and wider things and are more harmful for them. What's happening is we're giving them unrestricted access to smartphones. We're giving them unrestricted access to gaming, online gaming. We're giving them unrestricted access to watching. And all of these things coming together are causing these breakdowns. And we're not really aware of what's happening. Now, I say smartphone is a killer because a smartphone opens access to also social media. And social media is just, you know, filled with 
you know, there's a lot of good you can say within it, but it's so harmful. It's so harmful for children. And like I said, with you know, with a parent now, you know, they talk about alcohol, for example. In this country, what well, I think is 18 is when children can have alcohol, for example. And now, you know, the way you go, can go to a parent who maybe does drink alcohol and say to them, okay, would you give your child alcohol at the age of seven? You know, would you do that? Would you give it? Would you give the bottle in their hand and say you can play with it and think they're not going to drink from it? You know, this is exactly this is exactly what is happening by giving them a smartphone. Thinking, okay, look, they're just going to. Do you not think they're going to access all the harms that go in it? And most of the families I've seen it because why they're completely broken. The homes are broken. Why? Because you can't build a relationship with a child if your house is technology centric, meaning that they have unrestricted, unfettered access to all of these things. Now I'll give you I'll give you an example. I said children, you know, and I've always said this with smartphones. If you want to start from the beginning, children don't need smartphones. They don't need smartphones. Yeah. Now they may be, they may end up being different in in their school, but then try to build the love and encouragement that it's it's okay to be different. You know, the Prophet yeah. mentioned, you know, Islam came as something strange, as a gharib. And it will leave as something I think I think that's what a lot of parents are afraid of, of, of their children not fitting in and and the parents don't want to put that pressure on the child to feel that way. Um, yeah, that is a fear. That is a fear of not fitting in. However, we need to give confidence to our children as well. We need to build the confidence that look uh, at your own life. Don't always look at other people not to be sheep, not to be followers, not to just fit in with the crowd, but understand the values. And that's why it's important when we do maybe restrict some of our children. We are going through an education process to make them understand the benefits and the harms. So actually, don't just look at it bad. Look at there are many benefits of social media. There are many benefits of smartphones and technology, without doubt. But look at the harms as well. But also, the other key part of it is, look at yourself. If you want, you expect your child to do something, you need to be also be doing that. So a good example, like I said, with, with, with phones, is if you're always using your phone, then you tell your child not to use your phone, no, it's not going to work. You have to lead by example. If you're always, for example, using social media and, and, and you know just spending hours and hours upon it, and then you tell your child not to do the same, it's not going to work. You have to be leading by example. And we have to look at that, that the, the modeling theory, where the children imitate the action that they see in adults. So it's really important that we also lead by example. I said it, children don't need smartphones. I, look, my kids, they don't have smartphones. Yeah, My older two who are in secondary school, my son next year is going to go as well. You know, they don't have smartphones. And their secondary school is 45 minutes away from my house. So what I do have, because of the journey and the distance that they do have, and at and times they come home by themselves and go by themselves, they do have a phone, but I give them the um, the old school Nokia phone, yeah? yeah, where you can text and call. And that's the the process and the necessity of the phone, to be able to text and call, let me know if you're late, if you're running late, if you're going to school safe and so forth. You know, these are the reasons we have it. But the children are aware. I've already told them and we've ingrained that from a young age that you will receive a smartphone when you're 16, meaning once you go to college sixth form, not before that. Yeah. Because this is one of the most testing times for children. And like I said, if you're going to give a child who's going through such a turbulent time in, in, in secondary school access to these things, you don't think the harms are going to come from it. They will. But once they are, usually the kids settle much more as they get older. Maturity has an impact. And so that's why it's really important that I don't feel we should give access. However, if a parent now feels they have to give access, there's also steps. If you feel like, okay, right, I do need to give a smartphone because I don't want to feel, try and feel ostracized and so on. Okay, fine. If you want to take that approach, then what you should do, ensure when you give a phone, 
that it doesn't have any uh, unlimited data, for example, that they can only jump on uh, on uh, on the internet or the or the social media apps when they are in a Wi-Fi zone, a Wi-Fi hotspot. So that means that when they're out and about on the journey to school and back, they're not using it. Yeah, this is this is a way of preventing and helping children. Then what happens is when they come home, tell them to turn their phones in. If they're at home, they don't need to have their phones. Folk make the home more sent, more focused around conversations between family. That when you're outside, you've spoken to your friends. When you're coming home, it's about family now. And you make that more centric. Now what happens is if you still feel, no, no, I can't get the children to turn the phone in. They need to have a bit of time. Okay, fine. Give them some allotted time. Maybe, okay, you can have an hour after dinner, for example. You can use your phone. But if you do provide that, the same time, it's really important that they only use the technology in communal areas. Do not allow it to go into the bedroom. Tech yeah. Bedroom must remain tech-free. That means from smartphones, from laptops, from gaming. And I've seen one of the biggest problems parents are facing is they've allowed technology to enter the bedroom and that's it. The children are now cocooned away and they're completely separate from the family and they've been overly exposed to so many harms that parents kind of have no control over now. Now to take it back becomes very, very difficult. So these are important steps that we can take. And then also the last part is if they have it and they do allow them to use it for a period of time at home, then make sure at night time they give you the phone, they turn it in. Do not allow them to have the phone in the bedroom next to them because all hours of the night we know children are struggling with sleep because they're involved uh, online or in social media. And then what you're doing is with the smartphone, ensure that you restrict what social media that they do use. Ideally, they shouldn't because most media apps, social media apps aren't allowed for children under 13 and some are even under 16. So if you've got kids accessing it, they shouldn't be. And there's, you know, um, to be honest, some of these ratings should be higher. And the one thing I always say is, and one of the most popular apps now with kids and especially girls is TikTok. I absolutely cannot stand TikTok. I feel it is the shaytan, is, is, is the is the iblis of all of the uh, social media apps. It's dangerous. It is not designed yeah. for children. It's a gateway to pornography, to abuse, to so many other harms. For the sake of your children, I like I, I can implore you: do not allow them to access this app because it will only open the doorways. They may think I'm only watching videos. There is actually an article that I posted from another site that is on my website that talks about the harms of social of TikTok. So no, I can I can only say just avoid your children from accessing this because it's just no use, no benefit. <laughs> Subhanallah. Yeah, it's it's um there's so much there's so much out there that can distract our children uh, on 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 phones on the smartphones online. Um, but but you're right, it comes back to that foundation, you know. Uh, are we building a relationship with them? And uh, once we have built a relationship with them, then we can then set those boundaries and we can control what they're accessing. Um, so I wanted to have maybe uh, in the last few minutes, a mini consulting session with you. So I, I, want, to, I want to see how it goes. Shall I got your time. Uh, let's see if I ask you a few questions about my situation, maybe that will help others as well. So at the moment I've got, uh, my, uh, my kids are very young. Okay. My daughter is one years old and, uh, my son, uh, is two and a half, uh, nearly three years old. Um, but what I'm starting to notice with them, a bit of sibling rivalry. Okay. Uh, you know, it's, it, they, they obviously, they have kind of, as they say, a love and hate relationship. They love to play with each other, but then they also fight each other. So, um, what would you advise in terms of as they're growing up, what can I do to help them? 
stay in a, in a closer bond with each other to avoid uh, as many problems as possible between them and and I, I and I do realize that a lot of it can fall onto how maybe me and my wife how we might treat them and whether we're treating them equally um, so how how can you advise us as parents also to uh, make sure that that we're doing that as well yeah, you've already touched upon it, you know, the answers within yourself, uh, <laughs> uh, which is about um, how we treat our children. And children are attuned to how we as parents react to each child. And you hear the biggest phrase, it's not fair. And as your children get older, you'll hear it continuously. You may be one child does something, other one doesn't, they're going to say, it's not fair. They keep on saying, it's not fair. Um, and that's because they're, they're viewing, you know, what's happening um, and you're, you're maybe showing preference to one child over another. At the same time, just because they said it's not fair, doesn't mean actually it's not fair. Because we obviously understand something more. There may be many factors in there. And one of the yeah. things that we can do for our children as they're growing is educate them about um, the difference between equality and equity. You know, when they talk about issue of fairness, you know, it's not, the, it's not always the case. Because if you ask a child what's fair, their one's going to be that every person should get the equal share of the same thing. Yeah. That, that, that's equality. However, we know that in, in society, there are many people who are disadvantaged in many different ways. So not if we give everybody the same thing, it doesn't work. So we give an easy example. For example, if, you've, if you're now asking that everybody has to climb the stairs, but there's somebody with a wheelchair, yeah? And then that person with the wheelchair can now take the lift. The person climbing the stairs will say, oh, that's not fair, he's taking the, he's taking the lift. <laughs> I want to take the lift, yeah? But then, if you want to talk about equality, equality is you would expect the person in the wheelchair to take the stairs. That's equality. But no, we're talking about equity based on everybody having an equal chance, an equal level footing based on their ability, based on their situations. And that's one of the key things we need to start teaching our children. So sometimes the older sibling will say it's not fair to the younger siblings, but that's also to do with, look, they, a lot of the time the child is younger, they haven't got as much understanding and many other factors that come into play that we then are more, we try to be more equitable and not necessarily equal, but the older siblings will see you're not being fair and equal. So there's an important process of tarbiya and educating our children through that. One of the key things that the way you look at sibling rivalry is, is this, is look at it as a simple maths. Because, you know, if siblings have continual fights throughout their lives, then what can happen is they get into adulthood, they'll have these negative reflections of their childhood. And they will say, oh, that sibling, I always hated them. They always annoyed me. They always did this. And then that relationship goes yeah. into adulthood. And then you see there's a chasm, there's a gap between the, 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 the brother and the sister and they don't like each other even into adulthood. However, we want to make sure that that doesn't happen. Now, the simple way is, as I said, it's simple maths. So in a day, in, in one day, if you've had your child or children, your, your son and your daughter, they've had five conflicts. Yeah? So five negative experiences. Then you as a parent just need to make sure there are more positive experiences together that right. outnumber the negative. So five negatives, okay, fine, I want to make sure there's seven positives. So at the end of the day, when they reflect, more positives outweigh the negative. So that day was overall positive. And you keep on yeah. doing it like this. Every time you see a negative reaction, do two positive interactions. So, and you do it together. So it could be them to have really fallen out. Okay, right, as a family sit together, have a game, have a meal, have something maybe that creates a positive interaction. And then you see those uh, uh, positive things uh, will outweigh the negative. So a lot of times it could be easy, even outings and those kind of things really help build that positive uh, interaction. 
Um, and that's the simple solution. Think of it as just like maths. Always out, outnumber the positive against the negative. Now, naturally, the last point I'll say is, look, with siblings, you will always have the older sibling um, and the younger sibling. Sometimes the younger sibling will come in and start getting more attention. Why? Because we know their need is greater. Maybe they're still small. Yeah. They, need, they need more attention and care than the older siblings. And so we talked about equality and equity. So therefore, it's always important that you do ensure that you give enough time and attention to the older siblings. And that's where it comes to the earlier point I mentioned before. Spend one-to-one -one time with each of your children. Give them that undivided attention. Each child needs that. They crave attention. Even when a child gets to adulthood, they still are craving the attention and the acknowledgement of their parents. And we, we may suppress it, but in truth, we still do. We still feel like when well, my mom and dad say, oh, you did great, my son's like this. You know, we still, you know, it's human nature. We still are seeking the approval of our parents, even into adulthood. So children really require that. And one of the things that is, they will really want your undivided attention. So create that time where it's just one-to-one -one between you and your child. And that would then help basically take away some of that um, maybe dislike or enmity that could be brewing because they're seeing, oh, my younger siblings getting more attention and more time than me. Okay, alhamdulillah. Jazakallah khair. I think that's going to be really helpful for me. Muharifa, I'll let her know after the podcast is done, inshallah. Uh, the other thing that I always, I always think about is um, as my children grow up, like me and my wife already talk about the types of goals that we want to set for our children. You know, we want them, we want them to be able to do this and this and this and this and this. And uh, the thing that sometimes um, gets me worried is uh, how do I set that goal for them without pressuring them like what what if it turns out that those things that we would like them to do isn't something that they are completely fond of or is something that they find very difficult uh and then then they feel they feel pressured because of that but at the same time those goals are maybe very very good goals like for example maybe memorizing the quran or maybe you know um um uh, pursuing a certain uh, uh, passion of in in sports or, or you know whatever it may be maybe you know they're, they're very good things that we do want our children to do but what if they feel too pressured so how do we go about setting those goals without making our children feel pressured yeah that's an important point we want to really develop our children we have high aspirations for them so the first thing we need to do as parents is actually write down the goals what is it that we want our children to achieve be it, be it known what is the goals we want? However, with the goals, sometimes there's something just before that that we're not really looking into, which is, you know, is it the goal in itself that we want them to achieve or is it a certain value or a certain characteristic we want to ingrain within them? So, for example, right. imagine now your goal is you want them to have a, uh, a degree, an example. You want them to make sure that they go for university, they get their degree. Yeah? Now, really... Is it the degree that's the goal or is it something that's be, you know, behind it? It could be the case of you want them to be hardworking. You want them to never give up. You want them to maybe get on to have a good career. So that means they're all very much linked to why you're setting that specific goal. So if you want them to memorize Quran, the goal maybe isn't the memorization of Quran. Maybe it's the love of Quran. You know, if we kind of take a step back and realize hang on a minute, maybe it's those things we're looking at. And if we can get those, these are values. Now, they're the yeah. values we can now try to build within our children because if we build the values within, those, within our children and that characteristic within our children, then those goals are more achievable. So if they have a love for Quran, they themselves will want to memorize the Quran. If they have a love for Salah, they're the ones who will safeguard their Salah. 
And so that's the bit that we want to work on and say, okay, how do I now go about building the love for these things? Or I always say to my children, you know, when it comes to academia, which is that, and I'm quite blunt, I say, I don't really care what grades you get. I really don't. What I care about is your effort. I only care about your effort. And I ingrain that within my children. If you put your effort in, yeah, if you have done your utmost, remember, and I, in, in Islam, you know, you know um, um, the, uh, the effort or the input and the outcome, they're actually disconnected. They're not connected because the outcome is solely in the hands of Allah. Yeah. Now we see that for examples, and I always give this, which is we look at Islamic um, history, look at the stories, uh, you know, that Allah wants us to put the effort in. Example of Maryam السلام, after she gave birth to Isa, السلام, she's underneath a date palm tree, she needs sustenance, she needs energy. What did Allah say? Shake the date palm tree. Yeah. And the woman who's just given yeah. birth, she can't shake nothing, let alone men. Strong men can't shake a date palm tree, but she had to put the effort in. Allah gave the outcome, and the dates fell. You look at the, you know, you look at history, for battles in Badr. Allah actually wanted the Sahabas to march forth into Badr, but they were outnumbered three to one, and not equipped at all. So what happened is they marched forth. They did the effort. Allah gave the aid. Allah gave the assistance, and the outcome was in his hands. And so the more we teach our children, the outcome is always in Allah's hands. However, there is a parallel, there is a link that generally speaking, if you do your utmost, generally speaking, you tend to achieve the goal. However, that goal is always in Allah's hands. So therefore, if we teach that to our children, then what do they know? They know that I value your effort. So whenever you do an exam and you didn't do well, I'll ask you, okay, do you think you did your best? Did you put your effort in? And they'll say, no, I don't think I did. Okay, then you know where next time put that effort in, maybe you can achieve it. If you say, no, I did my best and you got a bad result, Qadarullah. You know, you leave it that, Alhamdulillah, I'm happy with that. You're giving your effort and that's all we can do. We can give our utmost. So the value I enshrine within our child is about effort. I don't care about your results. And because that, what that does, that takes away the pressure of exams. Because a lot of the times, children suffer and they struggle with exams. Why? Because they're afraid, or oh, I need to get this grade. Why? Because my parents are expecting it. Take away that. That and then you will see that they are less pressured in that because why it's all about the effort. So that's why I said the yeah. key values we want to instill within our children. Look at those things that and then you try to ingrain that within your children, continuously reminding them and building uh, on that. When it comes to children trying to achieve goals that become quite difficult, a lot of that's because uh, it's to do with also what we call emotional intelligence. That a child yeah. as we're developing. And we're going through, uh, um, uh, you know, our ability to recognize our emotions, recognize how our emotions impact other people, and also knowing that how we can continue and persevere to our goal, irrespective of the difficult emotions that we're feeling. And all of these components, the five components were together about emotional intelligence. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to develop that within our children. Um, usually they say as you get to adulthood, you get better at it, but we still see adults who suffer from lack of emotional intelligence. Good example, road rage. Normally somebody cuts you up, somebody does a dodgy maneuver, that's it, you're just crazy, I know I'm really bad at that. Um, so, you know, you see emotional intelligence isn't coming to play at that, in the, at that point. But that's what we're trying to build within our children, that sometimes we find things difficult in life. But we have a goal and we persevere, we keep on going. And that's why we talk about, I, I do a lot talk about effort, because I feel that the more we can ingrain in our children, that never give up, keep on going. Put your faith in Allah and keep on going. Even if it's making small, small steps, make those small steps. Keep that journey, keep on moving. And those things will help you achieve that goal. And there's some bits around emotional intelligence that we can really look at developing within our children.
But the key thing is have the goal. But again, as parents, let's take a step back and see, is there something actually we want as a characteristic, as a value, more so than the goal in itself? And then ingrain that within our children. And then you will see, inshallah, it's more achievable within our children. Okay, alhamdulillah. So it's kind of like you know, it's the two shift of mindsets: the shift of the the child and the shift of the parent. The parent needs to look at, um, you know, what is the what is the actual characteristic that we're trying to ingrain in that child, rather than the, the goal to achieve. And and for the child, it's making sure that they're viewing the effort and rather than than the output. And uh, it's, it's quite profound to be honest. I haven't really thought about it like that. I think that the, the last question to, to end on, which I think would be a good good uh, summary of everything really, and, and I think the, the kind of purpose of Involved Fathers as well. Sometimes I find myself very, very busy with work and responsibilities outside of the home. Maybe I'm involved in certain community projects. Uh, maybe I have to work extra hours at work. Maybe I've got um, my you know, my mom, my brothers, my sisters, I need to attend to them. So my hours when it comes to my children and my family and my actual, my household and my wife and my kids becomes very restricted and, and, and it's only a small amount of minutes, maybe even minutes that I can give them for that day. If we as fathers are in those situations, which I feel like all fathers go through some of those situations, what is maybe the minimum that we can do to still be involved in our children's life or even in just that day what can we do to still leave a positive impact as fathers given that we have very restricted time you know our children they they fully understand um the role of parents and how busy we are they can see it without us having to explain it to them um and they they won't really get in the way of that however what they do want is that when you are present when you are free that you're giving them your undivided time, you're giving them your undivided attention. And so our children are, mashallah, very smart and they understand all of those things. And that's the key thing that we want to do. That when you are present, when you have, when you are free, don't be distracted. Meaning, one of the key distractions we have is the phone and we all fall into it. We, we, we suffer from that because we might, because the phone now brings work home, brings all of these other things that where we can be previously may have cut off from, now it brings it home. So when you are there, when you're at home, give that time. So if you come home, it may be a matter of minutes. The kids are going to bed. Go home, go to the bed, sit with them, ask them, you know, how was their day? Find out about them. Give them a hug, give them a kiss. Then what happens is it has a long-lasting impact on our children. There were some studies that showed that there's three times in the day that have the biggest impact on a child. Yeah, The first three minutes after they wake up, the first three minutes after they come from school or when you pick them from school, and the last three minutes before you put them to bed. And those three situations, those nine minutes, have an impact on how they perceive the whole day to be. If those, those nine minutes are positive, and in between were negative, they'll perceive the day to be a good day. And so that's how we can have a lasting impact. So I don't want to say, what's the bare minimum a dad can do? I don't like that. Because I think that we should try our best to do our most. But I know we're busy. And like I said, I have multiple roles. I have multiple things. You know, it doesn't help for me as well because my work is home-based as well. So my office is my home. Um, and so it becomes quite difficult sometimes to separate the lines. But where possible, pack things away, put it away, give that time. Sit with them, play with them, give them the attention. And if you can do that, that helps. So sometimes, like I said, you might be every single day of the week, you're really busy. Your children want to appreciate that, understand that. Try and give them at least, say, five minutes every day. They'll really value that. They'll know that, okay, dad's busy, but he's still giving me five minutes. He's still giving me time. Yeah. And then what you try to do is every week, try to carve out some time. 
and make that time booked in your diary where nothing else comes in. And then you give a longer dedicated time, one-to-one or collectively, with your child. Now, for example, I have every Saturday evenings free, a three-hour slot booked out where it's for one-to-one time with each of my children. So I have one-to-one with one child one Saturday, the next child the following Saturday, the next child and so on, and it rotates and we do things together. And so what happens is, generally speaking, out of the 52 weeks in a year, maybe 48 of them I I commit to because there are some occasions where, you know, emergencies are going to happen and something can uh, pop up. But otherwise, we are very consistent in booking that out and keeping it like that. Because the more you can have that dedicated slot, then your children love that. They know that, look, dad's really busy. We know that. But when he gives time, he gives us quality time. And that's what they're after. Subhanallah. for coming on Nurbai. I think it's been we've covered a lot, and I think we could go on for much, much longer. Inshallah, uh, if you're up for it, we can do a round two at some point as well, uh, and and deep dive into a few more things. Um, yeah, Zakhla for coming on, and may Allah bless the involved fathers project. I hope to see it grow further and further. Inshallah, um, and Inshallah we'll have you back on uh, another time. Inshallah, no problem. Zakhla for having me. Inshallah. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullah.